our feature guest tonight hardly needs any introduction, but let me give you one anyway, if that's all right. Professor Grayling, Anthony Grayling, is a genuine example of that much bandied about thing, a most remarkable man. Apart from being the author of uh, 30 books, including The Age of Genius, The Challenge of Things, and To Set Prometheus Free, he also writes widely on contemporary issues, including war crimes, euthanasia, secularism, the legalization of drugs and human rights. He's the founder of the New College of the Humanities, an independent undergraduate college in London, where he is president the master, and he was just this year awarded the commander of the British Empire, the CBE, for his services to philosophy. Now, that's not something that happens every day. <laughs> He's also a humanist and one of the great proponents of this approach to life, as he explained in The God Argument and several other books, including The Good Book, which is described as a secular Bible. If we have time tonight, Anthony, I'd like to talk to you a bit about what that might mean. So please welcome Anthony Grayling to Millennium. Until I started reading The Age of Genius, uh, I confess that I was of the opinion that the Enlightenment was kind of the great turning point, the great tipping point in humankind's thinking. I would have argued that we were, in fact, trying to, um, trying to encompass the ideas that were born during that period still in this day. But you make the claim in this book that uh, the changes in, ch in thought that took place during the Enlightenment, the kind of the adoption of the rational, the, uh, as opposed to the divine, that the universe is a place which, if we observe it closely enough, we can understand. Those sorts of thoughts have their root in a time 150 years earlier, um, in the 17th century. Indeed. Well, of course, we, we stick these labels onto periods of time for convenience. So we think of the, uh, the Renaissance in the 14th, 15th century, and the Reformation in the 16th century, and the Enlightenment in the 18th century, and they all are incredibly important moments. And of course, they're connected to one another because the developments in them feed into the developments that come later. But you'll notice in that little sketch I gave you there of a, of a few centuries, 14th, 15th century Renaissance, 16th century Reformation, 18th century Enlightenment. The one that's missing is the 17th century. And it's surprising in a way that it gets passed over because historians of science will tell you that it is an enormously significant period of time. So will historians of philosophy. And what people see uh, in the sort of mountain peaks of, of influence on the kind of history that is born uh, on us that has influenced our way of thinking about things, it's really the, the Reformation and the Enlightenment that, that matters. But the engine of that, the thing that drove those changes, happened in the 17th century. And if I may just illustrate why, uh, by, by a little anecdote. Just imagine that you lived in the year 1600, and you went out on a clear night and looked up at the stars. What would you see? you would see this magnificent array of beautiful lights studying the ceiling of, of, of heaven, majestically revolving around you. You're at the center of the universe, and you're at the pinnacle of creation. It's all about you. The whole universal story, all been set up, it's all been created, it's all been organized, because you are at the center of this great cosmic drama. Now imagine, a hundred years later, in the year 1700, the end of the 17th century, you step out on a clear night and you look up at the stars. What do you see? 
you see hundreds of millions of suns like your own sun, sunk in extraordinary abysses of space, so far away as to be unimaginable. You know that the light has taken so long to reach your eye that many of those things you see no longer even exist. You know that vertiginous feeling you get, that dizzying feeling of the sense of the immensity of the universe? Well, between 1600 and 1700, human beings went from the center of the universe to a rock, flying at a tremendous speed, and moreover spinning as well. It's a completely dizzying thought around that, that uh, um, molten ball of fire, our sun, and that our sun is just one ordinary member of billions of other such suns. That is an extraordinary revolution in our self-perception. Of course, you have to fast forward a bit to 1859, publication of Darwin's Origin of Species, to finish the job. Not only are we not at the center of the universe, but we're monkeys as well. So <laughs> that really does the job finally. Not quite monkeys, by the way, primates. We're a higher primates. Yeah. But there's, there's two or three other very radical changes as well for coming from that... Um, uh, ego-centered or, or human-centered view to the heliocentric view, but there's also this, uh, this view of kings and their place, the kind of the social change that you talk about in this book as well. Yes, absolutely. And again, to, to, to illustrate the uh, extraordinary nature of that change, uh, in the summer of 1606, Shakespeare's play Macbeth was premiered at Whitehall Palace. If you've been to, to London, you may have walked down Whitehall and seen the beautiful banqueting hall, which is the only part of the um, Palace of Whitehall left standing. And in that building, in the summer of 1606, Macbeth received its premiere. And it was a very, very topical play, because as you know, it's a play about the murder of a king the murder of King Duncan. Less than nine months before, there had been an attempted terrorist atrocity on the 5th of November, 1605, an effort to blow up King James I and his entire court and parliament, Guy Fawkes Day. Uh, so this was a very, very tropical play, and it would have really resonated with the audience that saw it, because to kill a king at that point, in the early, very, very early 17th century, was not merely murder, it was sacrilege, because kings ruled by divine right. They were appointed by God as his regent on earth, and therefore they have a sacred office. So to kill a king, terrible thing. Fast forward 44 years, 1649, from that very same building, King Charles I is led out onto a scaffold and has had his head chopped off. You may remember he was a sort of early hipster because he had a little beard and he, he put the beard over the edge of the scaffold and said it had done no wrong, so he didn't see why it should get chopped off as well. But 44 years later... Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> 44 years later, they chopped the head off a king, and so this whole idea about the divine right of kings and the sacred nature of kingship and the fact that you can't do anything nasty to them had completely changed. Now, that is evidence of the fact that the way people were thinking about society about the legitimacy of political rule, that that also was changing. So there were revolutions going on in that period of time which are of extraordinary importance. This isn't a history book. This is a, this is a, a kind of history of ideas mm -hmm. from a particular period. So mm -hmm. you're not trying to give some kind of overall picture of the 17th century because it's, you just couldn't really do it. Mm -hmm. But you do take us through some of the major events that happened. In particular, the Thirty Years' War takes up from what about 16 1618 to 1648 right uh, so so yeah. this is a, a devastating war yeah. 
uh, which just rolls backwards and forwards across the continent. Mm -hmm. from where, and they're, they're only fighting in the summer mm -hmm. these days. They don't, you don't fight in the winter and these days. Mm -hmm. It's too cold. So too muddy. Yeah. Too, too mm -hmm. muddy and too mm -hmm. cold. It didn't stop them in Flanders, of course, mm -hmm. but that was 300 years later. But, they, um, but w w they're going both. And it just destroys particularly the German the countries, doesn't mm -hmm. it? The lowlands all through there. Mm. And one of the points that you're making is that this war somehow gives rise to this change in thought. Is that, is that right? Am I correct in saying? Yes, indeed. It, it played an important part in it. So the, the Thirty Years' War, of course, there had been, ever since the beginning of the Reformation, earlier in the preceding century, a great deal of conflict between those parts of Europe that had become Protestants and those that had remained Catholic. And the Catholic cause was very anxious to try to recover the lost parts of Europe for the faith. Not just because they believed that uh, the immortal souls of people in the Protestant parts of Europe were in danger, but because there was a lot of tax revenue that was at stake, and they wanted to get that back too. Uh, and so the Thirty Years' War was, was in very large part about that. The, the Habsburg, uh, the Emperor, Ferdinand II, Holy Roman Emperor, had been persuaded by his Jesuit confessor, a man called Lamont Maini, to, that, that his, his soul would be saved. He would get into heaven. He wouldn't have to spend any time in purgatory. So I don't know if you know the Catholic view is that you have to spend a million or so years in purgatory just to get ready for being in heaven. By the way, this is what caused the Reformation. Because, you know, Luther, back in the preceding century, got very fed up with the fact that the church was raising money to build the beautiful Basilica of St. Peter's in Rome. And they did it by selling people indulgences. Now, I don't know whether you know what an indulgence is, but it's time off in hell. So you can pay a bit of money, and you have a million years off. And the more you pay, the more time you have off when you're dead. So this, and Luther, jolly well irritated Luther like nobody's business. Anyway, so Lamomain, he said to Ferdinand, he said, if you get... Uh, Protestant Europe back into the Catholic fold, your soul would be saved. So he, he launched this great war, 30 years war. Now the importance of it was, as you correctly say, it was a devastating war. It was by far the most destructive war that Europe had seen in its entire history to that point. One out of every three German-speaking people, and the, the, the German population of Central Europe is the, the largest and the most vigorous, one in three uh, of those um, folk died, either directly or indirectly, because of the war. And there were parts of Europe that didn't recover for, well, for a couple of centuries in some cases. So it was very devastating. But the effect it had was that it broke down controls. Border posts didn't have soldiers on duty in them. The, uh, people, letters and ideas could travel around as a result of the breakdown of the, of the censorship and the, uh, and, and the um, monitoring of movements of people in Europe. And when you start getting people moving about and ideas moving about, you get change. And so one of the great expediters of this revolution in thought, thought about society, thought about kingship, thought about the heavens, was made all the more potent. It was facilitated by this breakdown in, in order. Which is kind of a bit counterintuitive because you kind of think of uh, a continent being devastated by armies marching backwards and forwards, but at the same time there is this intellectual debate going on and there are people living in Paris and London and Hamburg and wherever mm. else it is exchanging letters. Mm. Is, is that, uh, there's no... There's it no seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Um, but, but, but in fact, um, the, the postal services... Now, here's the thing, okay? You'd think this was a cure for insomnia, this book, where it's got a whole chapter in it on postal <laughs> services. But it is, it is the most fascinating story because there was a family by the name of Taxis 
who way back in the Renaissance period had started to provide postal services for the, for the royal houses of, of Europe. And all during the 17th century, they, they ran this extremely successful, highly profitable postal business um, all over Europe. Uh, it was a little bit like the Pony Express in cowboy times, you know, the, the people galloping on horses from posting station to posting station. Uh, and the, the, it was very, um, uh, very lucrative for the Taxis family. Indeed, by the late 19th century, um, the Taxis family were princes and, and archdukes that accumulated this so is much a money. There's a wonderful paragraph where you give which is part of their name. Just That's so, right. It's a whole paragraph and you haven't even got to the end of the name. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Uh, so, 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 so communications, I mean, as you say, it seems counterintuitive and paradoxical, but, but be, be, because borders broke down and people could move across them, because when you got to a customs post, there was nobody on duty there. They'd been called away to the army or, or there'd been a battle nearby. So these things, these things could spread all, all over Europe and they were very fructifying as a result. You have to remember also, a very important part of the story is that in the parts of Europe that had fallen to the various Protestant denominations, the Lutherans and the Calvinists and the, the Zwingliites, who, by the way, as you would expect, hated one another much more than they all hated the Catholics and so on. So, but as a result, in those Protestant parts of Europe, the control o over thought and what people could publish was much weaker than in the Catholic parts. In the Catholic parts, right up until a third of the way through the century, they were still killing people, burning them at the stake if they thought that the sun went round the... I mean, the, moon went, the earth went round the sun instead of the other way around. Uh, but in the Protestant parts, they weren't able to do that, which is another reason why ideas flourished. But the ideas that had originally... They, they, they weren't able to do that specifically because they didn't have the strength or, or, exactly. or the, kind of the control that the Catholic Church did. Is exactly. that, is that exactly. correct? Exactly. That's exactly correct. They didn't have anything like the power of the Catholic Church. And of course, the first uh, result of this um, lack of censorship and control over thought was an ebullition, a great flourishing of interest in magic, Kabbalah, alchemy, astrology, you know, nonsense. And it was a, a, a few thinkers who saw that in amongst all that nonsense, there were some things that were really very promising. And they recognized that if you could separate the chemistry from the alchemy, the astronomy from the astrology, the medicine from the magic, if you could do that, if you could find the right way of doing it, you might make some real progress towards knowledge. And the two great thinkers who, who recognized how important the question of methodology is, the sort of method of inquiry. Two great thinkers in the early 17th century were René Descartes and Francis Bacon. Now, everybody's heard of René Descartes because his great slogan is on every pub wall in the country, I drink, therefore I am, so everybody knows about Descartes. <laughs> but but he, his very first book, actually, was a book called A Discourse on Method. How, how do you inquire? How do you reason? And Francis Bacon wrote repeatedly on this question of how you should interrogate nature. I mean, he was brilliant, actually. He said... We must, of course, observe nature, but we must also observe nature when we vex it. That is, go to the carpenters, go to the butchers, go to the, to the, to the wheelwrights and ask them how these materials behave when you burn them, when you chop them, when you bend them, when you soak them, so you can learn something about their properties. His great idea was the empirical method, using the powers of observation as evidence and then drawing inferences from it. Is there not some kind of revolutionary thought going on there in that? Because these people were tradespeople, and we're talking the, the, sci the, the scientists of the day and the philosophers of the day were from the aristocracy. And for them to actually say that there is something to learn from a leather maker or something to learn from a 
from a blacksmith. Is that not an extraordinary turnaround in the, in the way of thinking? Well, in fact, I think social change was itself a driver um, for the great revolution in thought in the 17th century. And that, that social change had begun a little bit earlier, back in the, in the Renaissance, because um, craftsmen, you see, painters and, and uh, musicians, whom we now regard in, in our world now as you know, elevated people of inspiration and the like, they didn't regard themselves in that way at that time. You know, all the great painters had workshops. They used to do the face and hands of the Madonna, and then their, their um, assistants would do the robes and the background and so on. Because they had lots and lots of Madonnas to produce, they were sort of mass-produced for all the churches wanting them. So they, they, they thought of themselves as craftsmen or, or, or producers, but they had become wealthy and, and well-respected. And so they had come to take a station in, in life that meant that the aristocrats you described were prepared to talk to them and interact and learn from them. But do you know, some of the instruments that became important in the rise of science in the 17th century began as fairground toys, telescopes and microscopes. You pay a penny and you can look through a telescope and see your neighbors across the street, and it was jolly amusing. And it was one day that somebody lifted the telescope up and looked at the moon, and my God, wasn't that a revelation? Suddenly see mountains on the moon and so on. Of course, there was uh, Galileo early on who perfected the telescope by polishing the lenses. And he saw the moons of Jupiter, he saw the rings of Saturn, he saw all the different features on the uh, surface of the moon and realized that Copernicus was right, that we are not at the center of the universe. Uh, but, I mean, it wasn't just looking at it. He had the mathematics to prove it. Is, is that, w w where did that come from for someone like Galileo? Where, where, how come mathematics had advanced that far that he could actually do those calculations to demonstrate these? Well, he, he, it was actually from astronomy mainly because people like Copernicus and Tycho Brahe and, and others uh, had recognized that the, the sorts of descriptions that you make of astronomical phenomena work better if you provide, uh, if you put them into equations, that is, if you put them into numerical relationships with one another. So when Copernicus talked about the orbit of a, of a planet around the sun, he recognized that it was elliptical, that it swept the same uh, space at the same speed, so obviously the planet was moving at a slightly different rate as it followed its elliptical um, path around the sun. And this was all, all described in, in terms of mathematics. Now, in the Aristotelian science that had preceded this, the kinds of explanations were actually circular. Why does the heart beat? Because it has a pulsative faculty in it. Why does a, a stone fall to the earth when you drop it? Because it's attractive to the center of the planet. Everything wants to get to the center of the planet. And Galileo and others recognized that, that that's not very informative. But what is informative is to look at the, uh, uh, at the, the velocity of a body traveling down an inclined plane, and look at the relationship between the velocity of the body and the degree of inclination of the plane. And this was much, much more informative, that kind of looking at numerical relationships. And so developers in, uh, in mathematics were, were very important for this process. And one of the things that, that I find most curious about the book, and, and you do very much address this in it, but at the same time, it, it comes later on in the book, is this, why it happened when it did. I mean, why are these ideas arising in humanity? I mean, some of these technologies, for instance, the spectacles had been invented in the 13th century, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? So, you know, lenses had been around for a while before mm -hmm. somebody thought 
that you could actually look at the moon with them? Or mm. what, what, what is it that actually makes it happen at that particular time? But the, the, or, 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 or even more, what is it that makes them functional? Mm. Because an idea isn't just an idea, or a lens is just a lens until you attach it to, some, to, to a mathematical formula or something. There is a minor theme here of accident. So in the case of lenses, uh, it happened that uh, there were two lens grinders in Amsterdam who recognized that if you put two lenses instead of one into juxtaposition, you could uh, increase magnification uh, as a result. That, that was a little bit of an accidental discovery because, as you say, lenses have been known about. Indeed, all the way back in, in antiquity, they've been known about. Magnification by use of water and glass have been known about in antiquity. But the thing that really, really uh, made the difference was, that was a twofold thing. First, you may remember that uh, in the late 15th century, Gutenberg set up his printing press uh, and uh, started to uh, produce printed works instead of laboriously hand-copied works. And within two decades of his doing so, there were thousands of printing presses all over Europe, a, a little bit like iPhones. You know, when there's a new technology, it's extremely rapidly taken up. I mean, I was, I was really struck, I happened to be reading as one does in the bath. You know, I was reading a short story by Dickens uh, just recently, a story called Mugby Junction. Ever read that story, anybody? You know, it's all about a man who gets an existential crisis, having worked in the city of London all his life, and he decides to go off to this great railway junction uh, and look at all the railway lines and wonder which one he should follow to see what his future would hold. Now, the really interesting thing about that is that the story was written in 1842. Think of this. The first regular railway service was set going in 1828. That is, 16 years before. And by the time that uh, Dickens had written that story, railways had spread all over uh, the United Kingdom and had become a fact of life. Remember, the Duke of, of uh, Wellington was very disapproving of railways. He said it will cause the working classes to move needlessly about. So, but it was, a, it, it was an example of, a, like, like the printing press, uh, like the railways, like iPhones and, and uh, computers and laptops and so on, new technology really explodes. So the printing press really exploded just in time for Luther to nail his 95 theses to the church door of Wittenberg in 1517 because he published, and his publications were spread all over Europe, his objections to the church. So, so he didn't that, just nail them to the door, he printed off. He could so. also print as well. So, uh, I mean, there had been people like Luther before, like Jan Hus in, in Prague, for example, in Bohemia, and others who had objected to, to the church, but that was before printing, and so people didn't hear about their ideas, but they heard about Luther. Now, the key point was, was this. Luther claimed the right for himself to freedom of conscience, that his conscience um, about the fate of his immortal soul was his own. The, the, the liberty to think for yourself in matters of religion seemed to Luther to be so important that he had to assert it. You remember when he was brought on, on trial by the church, he said, I can do no other. I have to go with my conscience before God. Now, the point about, about asking for liberty of conscience is that other people think, hang on a second, if you're going to have liberty of conscience in religious matters, why can't you have liberty of thought in anything? Freedom of thought. And the 16th and 17th centuries saw this rapid-fire expansion uh, of the, the, the claim to the right to think for oneself. That was the key to the Protestant movement in Europe, because Protestants all wanted liberty of conscience 
and that led to liberty of thought. And pretty damn soon, it led to people thinking about liberty of the person. Why do I belong to a king? Remember the levelers said in the English Civil War, they said, when Adam dug and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? You know, why you begin to think about why the social order is, is, is if you can think freely for yourself. So the great point about the 17th century is that it is the moment when human beings really began to think Oh, again, because of course it happened in classical antiquity, but, but uh, you all know, because you were reading about this in the bath last night, that in 529 AD, Justinian closed down the schools of Athens that had been founded by Plato and Aristotle, and from that time until um, the, the 16th and 17th century, people were under the control of an orthodoxy. They had to think a certain way, otherwise they could end up at the stake. But now they were free to think again and to inquire and to look again. And by the way, there was another little thing, too. In the year 1492, now everybody knows about 1492, it's when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and much to the surprise of the people who lived there, discovered America. <laughs> it was also the year, by the way, in which the, the Jews were expelled from, from Spain, so yep. it was a, a great moment. But in that year, a little book was published by a man called Leonicini, and the book was called De Erroribus Pliny, On the Errors of Pliny. Now, Pliny, of course, had written the great natural history, which is the great encyclopedia that everybody thought was a, you know, the embodiment of wisdom for nearly 1,500 years. But Leonicini, who was making a new edition of it to be printed from the manuscript versions, discovered all sorts of mistakes in it. And he recognized they weren't just transcription errors by monks. They were actual misunderstandings on the part of Pliny. And to discover that Pliny had made mistakes meant that the old idea that the past was a golden age, that it declined into a silver age, got even worse into a brass age, and now it had ended up in our own muddy era, that actually this declension, you know, uh, from, from the past to, to the present was a, a mistake, that we could learn something. If we had the freedom to think and to inquire again, we might be able to understand the world better than the ancients did. And that was an important idea too. An enormously important idea, but it was also everybody was rooted in this uh, in this superstitious existence, weren't mm. they? It wasn't just the Catholic Church. There was mm. the whole thing that it, because people didn't understand the way the world operated, mm. then you had to petition God or you had to petition whatever it was, demons or spirits or whatever it was, to make your crop grow better, mm. to to get rid of whatever disease you had, or, or, or all the different things. Mm. In this 17th century, this takes a real beating, this, this belief system. And I guess th there's two people I'd quite like you to talk about in terms of this. One is John Dee, who I think is a fascinating, but also Newton as well, who is seen as the kind of the great progenitor of the rational and the start of the scientific method. But he and John Dee have quite a lot in common, don't they? They do indeed, yeah, both complete nutcases and, and very superstitious. <laughs> Newton had the most extraordinary, um, uh, weird, very, very idiosyncratic set of religious beliefs. He wasn't at all orthodox in a way. He thought, because he spent much more time trying to unravel what he thought was the numerological secrets of the book of Revelations in the Bible, because he thought it was a blueprint for the universe. And if only you could crack it, then you wouldn't have to do any hard mathematics and physics. You could just, there it would all be, because it would be, be in the Bible. Um, so when you read what he says about scientific method in the Principia Mathematica, uh, what he says is absolutely spot on so far as uh, science is concerned. You know, he says, I don't, uh, I don't um, make hypotheses. You've got to 
uh, recognize that laws apply here, apply everywhere, that the, uh, nature is uniform, that it's governed, it's a law-governed realm. But then in his uh, mystical thinking, uh, he, he's completely different. But he was a very eccentric um, man, as many geniuses are. He wasn't alone. Robert Boyle, for example, the father of chemistry, was also a rather uh, superstitiously religious man. I mean, he was the man who invented Boyle's laws of motion in gases, and who thought that he had seen an alchemist actually turn a base metal into gold in a crucible. But a lot of other people, if you, if you read between the lines a little bit, you've got to remember that right up into the 18th century Enlightenment, it was very, very, well, I was going to say it was very, very hard. Actually, it was impossible for anybody to publicly say that they had no religious faith. You couldn't say you were an atheist. To say that was to say you were a multiple murderer, a paedophile, and had leprosy, and all enrolled into one. And so you, you would be ostracized or indeed killed. Cesare Vanini was burned at the stake in 1619 in Toulouse for having said publicly that he was an atheist. So you, could, you just couldn't do it. But it was also the case that the conceptual tools for thinking about where the universe might come from and where life might come from were, until that point, just not available. So thinking about how there could be anything at all, how existence could have come to be, how a universe could have started, the only resource that people had was the same one they'd had from the very, very earliest times of, of human thought, and that is our own experience as agents. You know, you pick up a stone, throw it into the pond, you make a splash, you did that. So the thunder, the origin of life, the lightning in the sky, there must be an agency behind it. And it seemed incredibly difficult to understand how it could be any other way. So a lot of people were orthopractic, that is, they went to church and paid their tithes, and they were very probably deist, that is, they believed that there might be some agency involved in the creation of the universe and of life, but they couldn't, because, I mean, you know, there were plenty of smart people then. You read the Bible, you think, oh, you know, that can't possibly be true. So there were plenty of people who, who thought that way uh, about the scriptures. And I would guess, you know, people like uh, uh, Descartes, who was very careful not to let on what he really thought, and Bacon and uh, others, Huygens, Roche, uh, you know, a lot of the scientists of the 17th century uh, were skeptics, but kept it very quiet. Spinoza certainly was. And his skepticism and Hobbes' skepticism, because they were both atheists, they, they, was, they were found out, and which is one reason why people never used to mention Hobbes' name, because he was a you know, really horrible thing, an atheist, and they were very worried about Spinoza. His huge influence on the subsequent century, on the Enlightenment century, uh, was, was, was extraordinary, and yet people wouldn't mention his name because of his atheism. Take, take me back just a little bit because I think you've answered the question just in, in what you were saying there, but Newton has this idea that somehow or other, if he can just decode the book of Revelations, he's going to find the secret of the universe. Mm -hmm. What is the secret? I mean, I mean what, 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 what was he looking for? I mean, was he looking for the capacity to turn base lead into gold, or was he looking for an understanding of why am I here? Why am I who I am and not somebody else? Why, where did the earth begin? What, what, 
what was he, you know, it's, it seems a very easy thing to say that he was looking for the secret of the universe, as it were. But, yes. but I'm just trying to work out, in terms of the 17th century mind, what was, what was the goal behind well, all this? Well, the, the, the phrase, the secret of the universe, uh, actually derives from what the, the uh, philosophers, of, the pre-Socratic philosophers of classical antiquity were looking for. Uh, in Greek, the word is arche, which, which is sometimes translated as principle, sometimes as secret, sometimes as explanation. But w what they were looking for was, uh, as it were, the blueprint, the thing that explained everything about the universe, what it's made of, where it came from, how it works. Okay, that, that was the thing that he was looking for. If, if you could take your mind right back to the person who is nominated the first philosopher, because he's the first person we know about who thought in this distinctive way, a man called Thales, who lived in the, uh, in the 6th century before the Common Era in Miletus in the Eastern Mediterranean. And he asked himself this question, what is the arche, the principle of the universe? And the, and the answer he came up with was water. This is because water is everywhere. It falls out of the sky, it's in your veins, it's in the sap of the trees, it's necessary for life. Pick up a clod of earth, it's damp, it's got water in it. The waters of the Nile produce soil whenever they flood, you know, the silt that comes out of the Nile. Uh, so the, the, the fact that it is ubiquitous, that it is essential, that it, can be, that it produces soil, and the fact that it is the only thing he knew that could take all three material forms, gas when it boils, liquid in its natural state, and a solid when it's frozen. So he thought, well, naturally, water is the arche of the universe. It's necessary, and it, and it can be anything and everything. Now, we wouldn't agree with him now, but what we notice about it is that he didn't say the answer to the universe is to be found in an ancient scripture or in a mythological story. He was using his powers of observation and reason to, to search for it. That, that's why we think of him as the first philosopher. Now, Newton was still looking for the same thing, the arche of the universe, but he thought that it surely it must be contained in the holy book of our religion. And indeed, he thought that the ground plan, the architecture design for the Temple of Solomon contained secrets as well. And he tried to unearth them, thought that, that perhaps the, the, the Temple of so Solomon was actually a map of the heavens, if only you could decode it properly. As you see, he was a complete nutcase. <laughs> But, it, it, but a clever one. <clears throat> but but it, it does kind of go to the nub of things. I'm, I'm not sure I can express this quite as well as I'd like to, but here we have um, Newton trying to... It, it's as if truth lies somewhere else other than where we are. We, there is observable truth that we can see that if I pour the glass out, the water's going to, the water's going to spill and it's going to pool and all the rest of it. But there is the idea that somehow or other we... There is an, uh, beyond us, there is some other force which, mm -hmm. which is the embodiment of all truth, and we just have to somehow or other decode it. And what the 17th century brings is a change in this viewpoint. It's the point where we actually suddenly say, no, the world is, obs is an observable world, and everything that we need to know about the world is actually here in front of us if we're prepared to spend the time to look at it. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that correct? That is correct. Uh, that, that is correct. And, and Newton, of course, was, was uh, prepared to go along with that a long way. Now, in other words, observation and experiment would tell us a very great deal about the structure and properties of the material universe and how it functions. It was a not unnatural thing for um, people of his time, some at any rate, to think that uh, in the great diversity of, of appearances, why is it, for example, that 
there, there are a, a number, that there is a number of, of metals and, and um, uh, elements. Why is it that there is a great deal of diversity? Don't they all reflect some underlying unity? In fact, the idea that you can reduce everything to a, a small number of principles or even to a, a single principle eventually is, is a, a potent driving force in human thought. Today, for example, in particle physics, uh, string theories, as you know, are, are um, in part driven by the assumption that the apparent complexity of the quantum world with quarks and leptons and all the different properties that they have must themselves be explained by something which is deeper and simpler than they. So this drive towards the idea of what is unitary and fundamental and basic and simple is a very natural uh, way of thinking about the world. Newton had it. The people of the, of the um, 18th century Enlightenment, however, thought slightly differently about the discoveries in natural science of the 17th century because they thought these empirical methods are so interesting, revealing, and powerful that what we should do is we should extend their application from the study of chemistry and the physical properties of matter to society, politics, human psychology, uh, the idea of law in the social realm and not just in the natural realm. And so the Enlightenment is actually a generalization of thinking in a secular and empirical way about things human human nature itself, and human society. And that is what generated ideas about human rights and democracy and, and change of institutions, pushing back against the idea that uh, uh, everybody is, everybody's body is owned by a king and soul is owned by the church. You know, yeah. Pushing that to one side and thinking quite differently about the world and about human beings in it. But this was an application of the, of the dominant idea, the idea that you would find in Newton's Principia, but that you wouldn't find in his religious writings. And I, I mean, one of the points I think that you're making in the book is that this birth of the modern mind that occurs in the 17th century with Descartes and Bacon, particularly, and then Newton, as you say, in his Principia part of it, this is a, a change in thinking that caught hold in the Western world and brought the modern world into being. But the point you're also making is that a whole lot of people didn't change. No, quite. Well, I mean, there are plenty of people in the world today, billions of them, in fact, who still think in the, in the pre-17th century mindset. I mean, they still think the world was created 6,000 years ago and there are gods and angels and, and what have you. And so the, the point I make about it is this, that in the year 1600, that mindset, that way of thinking about the world was functionally dominant. And the way of thinking about the world premised on um, philosophical and scientific reasoning and on, on empiricism was functionally marginal. But what the 17th century did was it swapped those two things around. The scientific way of thinking about the world, think laptops, aeroplanes, modern medicine, electric light, etc., sound systems, that view of the world is functionally dominant. And the religious and superstitious and antique way of looking at the world is functionally marginal, even though majorities of, of human individuals in the world still think in those terms. Except, That's except every now and then, like last November in America, it, um, it, it kind of, the balance shifts just a little bit, possibly. Yeah, well, but thereby hangs a long curly tail, actually, as, as to how it happened, because the, the Trump success in, in the United States is a marvelous 
example of um, the application of, of uh, scientific reasoning. Not, not that Trump knows what science or reasoning is, but the, the people who ran his campaign for him did. And they were able to use this, uh, these uh, big data techniques to uh, get lots and lots and lots and lots of different little groups of people with you know, belly aches about this and belly aches about that to aggregate them into a vote for Trump. Just enough to get the number of delegates in the Electoral College to make him president, even though he didn't win a majority of the vote in the country. Same with Brexit, by the way, another bit of madness as well. And in fact, actually, it was the same people, Cambridge Analytica, it was a big data company who used exactly the same technique for Brexit as they did for Trump. There was an evening, if you remember, when Trump said during the presidential campaign, he said, I am Mr. Brexit. Do you remember that? And he said, you see why, I am Mr. Brexit. And this is because this company, Cambridge Analytica, had done for him what it had done for the referendum vote. What they, what they do is they, they trawl hundreds of millions of data points from social media, and they can profile people so accurately that just by looking at a couple of your tweets or a couple of the places you land when you're doing a Google search, they can tell pretty well how old you are, where you live, how you might vote, what your tastes are in clothing, and so on. It's extraordinary how they can do this. So what they do is they identify, this group of people is really bothered by immigration, that group of people by unemployment, this group of people by healthcare problems, etc. So what they do, if you, if you go on YouTube and you look at a Trump speech, you will think that that speech is incoherent because it seems to be full of non sequiturs. What it is, is it's a necklace of messages. This message goes to that group, this message goes to that group, they have no connection. This message goes to that group, and by this mean, and people only hear the messages they're interested in. They don't bother to listen to the other people's messages. And for this reason, if you slightly change the wording, you can contradict yourself in a speech, as Mr. Trump did all the time, because this group of people wants to hear that message, and this group of people wants to hear the opposite message, so you just give it to them in a different form of words. And then this means, it's perfectly true, I mean, it sounds like a joke, and boy, it's a really bad joke. We've got Trump in the White House now. And by this means, you can aggregate all these people to vote for you. The same thing happened in the, in the Leave referendum in the UK. It's very dishonest because in a democratic order, that, the fact that that technique is being used ought to be transparent. It ought to be known. And how much it costs uh, ought also to be known because there are limits on campaign spending, as you may know. And in the case of the Leave campaign, that uh, work was done, quote unquote, for free for the people who ran that campaign. So you can just see there's a real problem there. But uh, that, that's the 21st century, not the 17th century, sorry. No, no, no but it's fascinating. And, and it also kind of, I, I'm looking at the time here, I really did want to talk to you about humanism for, mm. for a minute. So maybe before we go to questions, if I mm. could just uh, sort of drag you away from the 17th century into, mm. into the present mm. thing. And just, I mean, a good place to start might be to ask you to define what humanism is and, and what the premise, premises for a humanistic belief are. Yeah. Well, humanism is a, a non-religious ethical outlook which has its roots in the philosophy of classical antiquity. Uh, you will remember since, again, this is Mulaney, so you were all reading Plato in the bath last night as well, in the jacuzzi, no doubt. Well, you, you will remember that, that Plato tells us that what Socrates did was that he challenged his fellow Athenians with a question. The question was, what sort of people should we be? How should we live our lives? He wanted to get people to realize that the sorts of 
concepts they used when they talked about the right and the good and the best kind of life and courage and continence and kindness and so on, that they hadn't really understood what they were talking about. That if they really thought about it, they would see that there is a challenge that each individual has to meet. And the challenge is to acquire some degree of self-understanding. You may remember that the, the slogan over the oracle at Delphi was, Know Thyself. So some, some degree of self-understanding, and then some, some sense of one's talents and capacities for making a life which is good to live and which has good relationships in it. Because that is the best, the most flourishing and worthwhile kind of life. So this was the Socratic challenge, to think, think for yourself, um, understand yourself, think about the values that would shape and colour a set of choices that would define a life that you might live. Now this is very, seems very, very straightforward and seems sensible and kind and straightforward, but it has beneath it an extremely deep point, a very, very important point. And that point is this, that, uh, that, that the meaning and value of any individual's life is that individual's responsibility to make. That is the opposite of saying that there is a one-size-fits-all answer of what the meaning of life is for everybody. That the, the same life for everybody is the good life. And this is what all the great ideologies, political and religious, have told most human beings for most of history. We've got the answer, we know the truth, this is how to live, do it, otherwise you're in trouble, you're not going to get into heaven, or we are going to give you hell. One of the two. So you've got, got a one-size-fits-all answer. But the Socratic challenge is, each of us individually has this responsibility to think about how we're going to live. Now there is a great problem if everybody's got to think how to live. Because you remember what Bertrand Russell said? Most people would rather die than think, and most people do. So, you know, there's a real, real problem there. In fact, I've come up with, with, with a, a new little anecdote of that kind. Do you remember Adlai Stevenson, who stood against Eisenhower in that election in 1952? Somebody said to him, Mr. Stevenson, every thinking person in America is going to vote for you. He said, oh, I'm so pleased to hear it, but I need a majority. Well, this is... <laughs> Exactly, exactly sums up the problem <laughs> about people accepting the Socratic challenge. So if you accept the Socratic challenge, then you, you've got to think about, about this question of what you know, the, the, the meaningful, the significant life is for you. Now, humanism is the view that when, leaving aside any thought that there might be a deity who tells you how you've got to live your life or obedience to a church or a priest or anything, you've got to do it. And so it doesn't tell you what to think and what not to think, what to do and what not to do, other than to think for yourself. That's the one great injunction of humanism. Otherwise, humanism is an attitude. The attitude is, human nature is very various. People are very diverse. People have their, their talents, their struggles, their problems, their desires. So your default attitude to another human being should be a sympathetic and generous one. Be sympathetic and generous. Since my day job is I'm a professor of philosophy, I shall mention Wittgenstein, okay? Wittgenstein, there's a story told about Wittgenstein, which is that his sister Hermione said to him one day, Ludwig, she said, we cannot understand you, you behave so weirdly. She said, he said to her, you're like a woman who looks out of the window and sees a man walking in the street in a very funny way, and she doesn't realize that he's struggling to make headway against the gale. It's a bit as if he's up in the north of Queensland. There's a great gale blowing against him. He's trying to make his way along the street. So he's walking in a funny way. 
Now, all of us have gales blowing in our inner landscapes from time to time. Other people do too. This is why to be sympathetic, to be generous, to give people their margin is, is important. And that's the humanist attitude. If people misbehave, if they're cruel or unkind or selfish, then you say, well, I'm not going to be that person's friend. If they do terrible things, if they commit murder in the name of their faith or whatever it might be, that puts them beyond the pale. Because as you know, you must have standards, obviously. It's a bit like they say, it's a great thing to have an open mind, but not so open your brains fall out. So you do have to have some sort of limits, and you will have ethical limits. Cruelty and unkindness and selfishness and greed and bullying and mere cruelty, those things are not acceptable. But otherwise, be sympathetic, be generous. That's humanism. It's about our human contact with other people, about our ability to connect with them. And by the way, a lot of people say to me, oh, you're a humanist, so you're unkind to animals. I say, nope, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, I think animals are human. I think the environment is human. It's all about our, our human world. I speak as a vegetarian, you see. <laughs> In the, the, I've recently been reading this book of yours, which is The God Argument, which I, I highly commend because he, Anthony spends the first half of the book uh, explaining why there's a woman hold you wants to get you to sign it afterwards. <laughs> um, uh, spent the first half of the book explaining uh, or arguing the case against religion, as mm -hmm. it were, and then you argue the case for humanism. And it couldn't have been more beautifully put than you just did then. But the, there, there's a kind of passage in the middle where you argue that religions should have exactly the same influence on society that other non-government organizations do. That they shouldn't, that, that it's all right, people can believe whatever they want to believe, but Catholics and Protestants and Methodists and Buddhists and Islamists and everybody, they should all just have to line up at the door in the same way that trade unions do or, mm. um, or, or, or Greenpeace or whoever mm. else it is. Yeah, absolutely, because you know, religions are uh, interest groups, they're lobby groups. And they've got a point of view and they, they want other people to accept it or they want to influence public policy or you know, government. Um, but they should take their turn in the queue. Now, for historical reasons, they're given a place at the top table. They're given an amplifier in society out of all proportion to their sort of actual representation in society. In the UK, for example, about 10% of the population will go on a regular basis to a church or a mosque or a synagogue or a temple um, but I go on these panels to discuss religion in society. There will be five men, you know, not very many women at the tops of many religions, as you know. So there'll be Catholic, Jew, Protestant, Muslim, and moi. <laughs> I'm the token atheist secularist. And they didn't have to ask a woman, anyone got the hairstyle. So we've got the five of us there together. And I say, hang on a second, in this discussion, we're going to hear four religious voices representing about 10% of the active, religiously active population, and one voice representing the atheists and secularists and humanists. And this is so characteristic of the distortion in society of the influence that religion has in society. And I, I think, you know, I mean, look, you know, and believe what you like, just so long as you don't impose it on, on other people and ask them to respect you because you have those beliefs, on the contrary, it may be a reason not to respect you, but you certainly shouldn't impose your um, preferences on other people. Because th this is the definition of moralism. A moralist is somebody who says, I don't like it, so you can't see it. I don't like it, so you can't do it. I don't like You remember Mrs. Mary Whitehouse? 
She's the only person in the universe who had a television set without an off button. So she was had forced to watch all that nudity after nine o'clock at night and write <laughs> complaining letters about it to the BBC. And somebody should have just said to her, pull the bloody plug out if you don't like this. You know, why, why, why make other people suffer because you don't like it? Now, this is so characteristic of this idea that you've got to impose on other people the, the outcome of, of your beliefs. And just, be, just before we go to questions, I just have to, I have to ask you once about this good book because I, um, I, I was given a few books by Bloomsbury for to interview you and I read through them and I, the good book was the last one I came to. I didn't kind of think, I thought, oh well, he's done some kind of a parody of the Bible, I, I guess I'll read that. You know? I was astonished when I opened it because it's not that at all. It's actually a kind of manual for living written in the same format as the Bible. And I was astonished on several counts, partly I think because of the poetry of the language, which I mean, apart from there being 600 pages and the fact that you've written 30 books and you can write a 600-page book, which is kind of like a Bible, which has histories and lamentations and songs and parables and all the rest of it. All that aside, is just, um, where did it come from? How, where did, I suppose, where did you find the time and where did it come from, this book? Well, a very long time ago, it took me a long, long time to make this book, actually, more than 35 years, because a long time ago I was thinking to myself, I've been reading a bit about... Um, the scholarship on the making of the religious Bible, as we know a very great deal now of, uh, as a result of textual criticism and so on, how the Bible of religion was made. It was made by um, texts being collected and edited together, paraphrased, redacted, and, and organized. I mean, all you have to do is just look at the book of Genesis, which has at least four different sources, different authors, which is why you know the creation myth is told twice and the Ten Commandments are told uh, twice, so you can choose which one if you happen to be sinning at the time, and so on. So all the different stories, and then we, we know. So we know how it was put together. And at the time that I was reading about that, I thought to myself, "Oh, if only these people had devoted this time and energy to going to the historians, the poets, the philosophers, the the, the uh, epistle writers, and get from them all the insight, the consolation, the the um, the, the, the uplift, that and wisdom." that the secular religion, the non-religious literature of the world contains from all the great traditions, and do the same job. Cultic, bring together these texts, weave them together, modify them, adapt them, make something of them that would be a biblos, a book. A biblos means little book in Greek. That, that could be a sort of a, a, a guide, something you could dip into and use and get a great deal of wisdom from. I thought, you know, somebody really ought to do that. And then I thought, <laughs> Damn, you know, <laughs> you realize that when you come up with an idea, it, it's kind of you who has to do it. So it, it took me a very, very long time because I had to, um, and I, I read uh, in, in all the great traditions and I uh, kept passages and I worked on them and I um, joined them together and what have you. And I decided that I would do it in the same format as the, as, as the Bible is sometimes published in a, a chapter and verse type of format which is a very, very accessible way of reading, because you can read just a couple of little passages or a longer passage. You can open anywhere and find something rather striking. So I did it in, in, in that. My book of Genesis begins with the apple falling in Newton's garden, so the beginning of, of science. <laughs> and so. I go all the way through, and there, there is, in, in the great literatures of the world, such beautiful, beautiful insights, such wonderful inspiration and, and, and consolation for the, the struggle of living uh, as it sometimes is, uh, for um, 
And in the case of the, of the songs, because I've got as many songs as there are psalms, now actually being set to music, these, which are rather wonderful. There's going to be a concert of them in, in London in, in the summer. Um, and, and I went, to, I didn't want to have anything very familiar in the way of, of poetry, so I went to the, uh, the, the Lyra Greca, you know, the, the Greek uh, poets, the Chinese poets, Indian, Persian poetry, and did al almost every word in that book is, is sort of adapted a bit or changed or paraphrased by me a little bit, and some of it is written by me, but mainly it is from this great, great treasure house of, of wisdom and inspiration. Because I thought, I thought what I would like is to show people that if you put that alongside the Bible of religion, um, that it, they, there could have been such a book, and, and now there is. And then two things I need to say about it. One is I went on the Colbert Report, you know, in New York, uh, and for half an hour, I was number one on Amazon as a result. And Stephen Colbert has this, uh, um, not, not that anybody was buying it, it was just that they were clicking on it. And, and Stephen Colbert has this, this uh, um, technique, you know, where he pretends to be a sort of gonzo redneck, and he attacks you, but in, by attacking you, he says, he gets people to realize what's nice about what you've written. So he said to me, uh, the trouble with this book is it doesn't tell me to kill anybody. So what's the use of that? You know, the Bible does, but this one doesn't. That was very good. The other thing about it is that um, we've all seen The Life of Brian, okay? The film. So you know the shoe, the shoe. And everybody wants to believe that somebody's a prophet or a god or something. So having written the Bible, I am going to be a god in a couple of hundred years' time. So I have to register the fact now that I'm going to be a very bad one. So, <laughs> so just make that public, and it's not going to work if you pray to me in 200 years' time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, look, we, we might get a question. I have a show of hands. Um, thank you for being here. I very much appreciate it. I just wanted to ask what you think is the most skillful way of introducing some of these wonderful ideas of philosophy and humanism to children, to kids. Oh, well, um, actually, there are wonderful resources available for doing that. And there is an organization called the Philosophy Foundation. It's based in the UK, but its books are available anywhere. Um, written by a man called Peter Worley, which are introductions to philosophical styles of thinking and philosophical ideas for kids right from the age of six upwards. They, they do marvelous work, these people. They, they go into, into primary schools uh, and hold up a ring donut, you know, the donut with a hole in the middle, and they say, say to the kids, What's happened to, what happens to the hole when you've eaten the donut? Where is it? You know, that, that kind of question, just to get them thinking and see the world in a different way. And the marvelous thing about little children is that they are completely natural at it. They're so good at philosophy. They're really, really prepared to think. And it's a, um, a, an example, a, a, an education in itself to realize that the creativity and the philosophical insight of small children is squashed out of them by our normal education system by the time they get to, to, to university, which is a real tragedy. So the, the idea of, of um, getting them to think as we say in the cliché, out of the box, see things from a different point of view. There's quite a tradition of this. There was a Victorian book called Abbott's Little Philosopher, uh, which begins by saying that uh, you, you take your, your infant, so it's advice to a mother, you take your infant and you say, what is there in this room that, that, that you can't see but, but is actually here? And it doesn't mean your guardian angel and so on. It means the air. And then you can do an experiment. You can do this with your hand, and you can feel the air when you do this, but you can't see it. And so it immediately alerts the child to all sorts of ways of thinking about the world and things you might discover when you explore it, which are not obvious. And this is, of course, the key aspect of thinking philosophically. So the Philosophy Foundation, Peter Worley, W-O-R-L-E-Y.
And, and just before you go, you now have 222 people who would like to know where the hole is in a donut? Yes, yes. <laughs> Think of this, where, where is the hole when you've eaten half the donut? <laughs> Um, I was very interested what you had to say about Brexit and about Trump, and I wondered if you could say anything about how you see the future of democracy, because it seems to me that our democratic rights are being taken away from us from the kind of activity that took place. Also, the fact that 50% almost of population in Britain voted against Brexit and another 50% voted for how do we reconcile those two groups of people to come together in any meaningful way? Uh, well, so far as the Brexit vote is concerned, 37% of the electorate enfranchised for the referendum, and by the way, it was a restricted electorate because it didn't have in it 16 and 17 year olds and expats and EU citizens, but 37% voted for it, so that's 26% of the population, not 50% of the population. So actually, there is no majority for Brexit in the country. But you're dead right, there is a serious problem about what's happened with the democratic order because it has been hijacked by big money, by big data companies, by these hidden techniques of persuasion, by the fact that our, our um, institutions of, of democracy have failed themselves and the people who, who, who vote. Uh, and they exist precisely. You know, if you think about the, the EU referendum, was advisory only. All you have to do is look at a briefing paper 07212, published on the 3rd of June 2015 by the House of Commons Library, four MPs before the debate on the referendum bill. They, they, they published these little sort of um, ladybird guides to MPs who don't read the bill. So they. That, and this says, paragraph five, this is advisory only, consultative only, it's not binding on parliament or the government. Section six, if you thought that it was going to be mandating in any way, it would have to have a super majority. You can't have a minority of the electorate voting for it. And yet the government just ran with it as if it's mandating and binding. May and Davis and Fox, all of them, by the way, failed ex-ministers who got sacked because of their incompetence. They're in charge of this process now, which is another reason for thinking it won't happen. But anyway, so, they, they the, so you, you see that there is a serious problem there. When you dig into it, you find that there's a very, very great deal to worry about in the nature of the process. Where's the... We, there's we a gentleman there who's had his hand up for a over here. Two gentlemen over yeah. there. That gentleman, yes. Yes, um, I'd, I'd like to ask a, a different sort of question about the Islamist world with the uh, incredible conflict and cruelty that's going on between the Shiites and the Shia and, and that the ISIS wants to bring us back to the 1500s. In fact, their behaviour in many ways is not that different. So my question is, are there any insights that you think you can share from looking at how the Christian world developed to how you think the Muslim world might develop over the next 100 years? Well, it's a very good question because it uh, uh, touches on the, the need that, that so many people, both within and outside Islam itself, um, see for a reformation, for uh, a revision in attitude towards the Quran itself and the, the degree of its authority and the Hadith. Um, for, for, for some years, actually, in London, 
I, I worked with a, the man who was the head of the Aga Khan University campus in London, a man called Abdu Falali Ansari. He was a Moroccan who had been driven out of Morocco because he'd been asked by the government to um, establish a, a new library of Islamic studies. And he was given a very big budget to do it. And he equipped this library with all the latest scholarship on Islam. And it turned out that about 80% of it was in English. And there was an outcry against this. And he pointed out that uh, um, the Islamic world in total translates into the languages, Arabic and other languages of, of Islam, uh, fewer books than are translated, are translated from other languages into Spanish each year. That's the entire Islamic world. Um, and so there's a real problem about the level of, of uh, self-examination and critical examination of the faith and its origins in the Islamic world. And he and a number of Islamic scholars were trying to get into the debate this idea of self-criticism and self-awareness. To take Islamic scholarship back to the golden age between the 8th and the 13th centuries, when very many of the people in the Arab and Persian worlds, not all of them people of faith particularly, but living under the Islamic regime, um, made great contributions to mathematics and science and to poetry and to philosophy and to the recovery of uh, uh, ancient Greek philosophy, the texts of Aristotle, for example. So to try to get that going again in the hope that it would precipitate a sort of more general intellectual revolution and a reformation. Because at the moment, the grip of the faith, especially uh, in, in the Sunni uh, regions, is so great that it is unchallengeable, unquestionable, and to question it is to be an apostate, and therefore to be in danger of your life in a Muslim-majority country, in fact. And the result of this grip uh, on thought that the faith has is infantilizing, disempowering, uh, uh, except in the only response that you can have to any criticism or, or threat from outside is, is anger and violence. And it's a very, very bad and corrosive thing. So there are lots of people within the Islamic world itself who realize the need for this. What would bring it about? You were reading Tolstoy in the bath last night, so you remember Tolstoy's uh, great theory was that individuals don't make a difference. He's wrong about that. Think of Nelson Mandela in South Africa, who made it possible for that country not to implode into an internecine civil war between black and white after all the horrors of the apartheid era. As the, the moral stature of an individual can have a great impact on a society. And what the Islamic world needs now is a great moral figure, a figure of great moral stature who says, let us question, let us be grown up and, and uh, ask ourselves, do all these principles really apply to our time? Do we really you know, think about them as they were thought of in the 7th and 8th century? Well, do you want to give this a bit? So, Professor Grayling, you've given us a very interesting historical perspective over the last few hundred years from a philosophical and a, a scientific background. But as a humanist, I'm very interested to know what you think about the next 500 years or even 1,000 years. Homo sapiens is an, a remarkably successful species, but a very, um, it's only been on the planet for a very, very short geological time. Um, where do you see the future of our species, given that we're so avaricious and greedy and successful in taking resources and so on? Are you optimistic, or where do you, where do you position yourself? 
You know, before the First World War, people saw that biplanes flew better than monoplanes. So they predicted that airplanes of the future would have 12 wings. This is a perfectly good example of what a mugs game prediction is. <laughs> you know, all, all the trends that are really, you know, the, the, the sense in which the future is already here, and it very often is the case, isn't it, that we don't see that the future has landed already because we're still looking in the wrong direction. In, in that sense, we may not even be conscious at this moment of the things, the trends, the technologies, the changes that are happening that are going to make the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years very different from the last half century. So, so one can only guess. But what one notices is that the rate of change at the moment uh, in technology and society and international relations, in almost every sphere that you can think of, is, is so fast that, uh, that much happens before we've really grasped what it is that has happened. Let me give you one example. We, we've, all, we've all embraced uh, with tremendously warm welcome the new technologies of communication, iPhones and the internet and Facebook and so on. Uh, and we find them so useful and so convenient that we wouldn't, indeed couldn't perhaps, be without them now. And yet they have stripped us naked to the view of any public or private agency who wants to pry into our, into our minds, into our private lives. I don't know whether you, you know this, that if you use Google a lot, Google will profile you so it knows what adverts to put up onto your laptop screen. But what you may not know is that that profile also leads Google to, to tell you, when you ask for information, what information it thinks you would like to hear. Now, that's, that's insidious. That you begin to wonder exactly how we're viewing the world if, as a result of a machine algorithm profiling us, it's giving us data that it thinks that we would like or we would find suitable or interesting. So it's just one little example. And there, and there are many such. Already, in, in one way, the future has landed already in the way of AI and robotics. In, within our lifetimes, probably, and certainly in the lifetimes of our children, the, um, many, many of the things that we do are going to be uh, taken over by machine intelligence. And so the uh, so, sort of center of gravity of what human beings do in the way of work and leisure and so on is going to, is going to shift in response to that. Um, what that world is going to look like, I don't know. I say to my students, uh, when, when they come in as undergraduates, I say, look, the great good news for you guys is that stem cell research and medical advances means you're all going to live until you're 130. The bad news is you're not going to be able to retire until you're 90 or 100 or something. <laughs> and in that, in that long future that you've got, you will probably, because things like job security, you know, that's out of the picture now, you're probably going to have maybe five or six different careers during the course of your life. We can't train you now. I mean, train somebody to be an actuary or an accountant or a, or a, or a heart surgeon, for that matter. All those jobs are going to be being done by computers in 10 or 20 years' time. So what, what, what can you train or teach people for? You can teach them for life. You can teach them to be adaptable. You can teach them to be really good, critical uh, evaluators of information. Flexible. Uh, you can teach them how to learn always. You can teach them to want to be masters of their fate and therefore always very, very alert to, to the changes that are happening around them that they need to respond to. That's what education is for now. It used to be the case, you remember back in when, when we were kids, that the teacher would download from his or her necktop to the necktops of the children, you know, some ge geological, geographical, geometrical facts. 
E equals MC squared, or the square root of the hypotenuse, and so on. Well, you can get all that information now, touch of a button on your laptop. So now education has to be different. It's not facts, it's not grad grind, it's not, you know, um, it's, it's techniques, it's skills, intellectual skills, how to think, how to analyze, how to evaluate. That's the really important thing. I love to tell people the following story. So you may have perhaps heard this before, but um, I have a, an acquaintance, a sort of colleague, uh, in France, a French philosopher by the name of Bernard-Henri Lévy. Have you heard of him? Yes. Flowing locks. It's not necessary to have flowing locks to be a philosopher, by the way, but, but he has them. He has a famous sartorial style. He wears his shirts open to his belly button. His hairy chest, well, a handsome chest, actually. He doesn't even have buttons on his shirt. His shirt is open to his belly button. And I said to him one day, I said, Bernard, uh, pourquoi? You know, wh why do you wear your shirt open to your belly button? And he said, and I quote, because I'm hot. Anyway. <laughs> he, he published a book recently uh, and discovered when the book was in the bookshops, been printed and was in the bookshops, that somebody he had quoted in the book with approval an unknown French thinker of the 18th century called Botul, B-O-T-U-L, didn't actually exist. It was made up by some joker on the internet, which Bernard would have noticed if he had further noticed that Botul's theory is Botulism. <laughs> which, exactly. So he was asked in an interview, how could you not check? You know, everybody knows you're meant to check on the internet. The internet is the biggest lavatory wall anybody's ever built in history. Everybody scribbled their rubbish on it. How can you not have checked that, that this was bunk? And he says, oh, you know, what he says is good, so I quote him. It doesn't matter if he exists or not. <laughs> but it does show you how careful you have to be, because now that the, the intellectual skills that uh, we have to equip our students with really is that skill of critical evaluation knowing how to get the information that matters. And that's a good way to end the night because we've run out of time. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you.